Good morning. My name is Elizabeth Foss. I am newly appointed here to First Church Martinsville. It is a pleasure to greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for joining us on online worship. As today is my first Sunday, I'm going to be asking for some mulligans. I am finding my way. Uh, I've just arrived on Wednesday and uh, we'll be spending some time learning faces and names. I hope that you will be patient with me as I learn. The staff and I were, were joking a little bit this, this uh, week about how we should do a pictorial directory and every person should be photographed wearing a mask and not wearing a mask because uh, coming in a pandemic means that I am going to have to learn faces twice. Uh, so please do be patient. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so anxious to meet all of you. I invite you to stop by my office. I have an open door policy and I'm so anxious to meet each one of you, to hear your stories of faith and to hear what you love about this wonderful gathered congregation. I am so excited to be at First Church Martinsville because you have a reputation of being a church with a heart, a church that is mission driven, and a church that is loving. I look forward to a wonderful time in ministry with you. I look forward to serving beside you. And most importantly, I, I think anytime there's a change of pastor, one wonders, well, what is the new pastor going to do? So I'll tell you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to fall in love with you. That is why I'm here and that's what I'm going to spend my initial time doing, falling in love with you. So I look forward to hearing your stories and learning all about you and your, your faith stories. I'm so grateful to be here and grateful to share in ministry with you. Let us join responsively in our call to worship. Gracious God, lover of our souls, you have made us for community, for relationships fixed in time and space, woven through common experiences, inspired by shared struggles, and dedicated to common goals. We give thanks for this nation of ours, for its commitment to liberty, for the vision of its founders, for the bravery of its citizenry, for its defense of the weak, for its love of justice. We give thanks for our fellow Americans, for their goodness and generosity, for the dreams that brought us all to this land, for the genius and industry of every generation, for the rich tapestry of our cultural heritage, for commitments that have made many one. Strengthen us in our resolve to act justly, to care for the weak, to defend the persecuted, and to foster freedom and peace. Make us worthy of the sacrifices made by so many. Inspire us to own for ourselves the best of our traditions, lend genius to our efforts, and instill virtue in our children. And remind us all that we enjoy this land of ours for only a brief time, as the place where we do our work, delight in our families, care for our neighbors, and nurture our faith. For one day all nations and races will appear before your throne, measured by your justice, redeemed by your grace, dependent upon your love, indebted to your wisdom. Guide us then, we ask. Amen. Mm -hmm. 
and our voices in the opening prayer. Almighty God, you rule all the peoples of the earth. Inspire the minds of all women and men to whom you have committed the responsibility of government and leadership in the nations of the world. Give to them the vision of truth and justice that by their counsel all nations and peoples may work together. Give to the people of our country zeal for justice and strength of forbearance, that we may use our liberty in accordance with your gracious will. Forgive our shortcomings as a nation. Purify our hearts to see and love the truth. We pray all these things through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning is found in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, beginning with the 7th verse. On the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul was holding a discussion with them. Since he intended to leave the next day, he continued speaking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were meeting. A young man named Eutychus, who was sitting in the window, began to sink off into a deep sleep while Paul talked still longer. Overcome by sleep, he fell to the ground three floors below and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and bending over him, took him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Then Paul went upstairs, and after he had broken bread and eaten, he continued to converse with them until dawn. Then he left. Meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's an English comedian named Rowan Atkinson. He's been in a number of movies, including Four Weddings and a Funeral and Love Actually. But he is perhaps best well known for his character, Mr. Bean, which was 
a half-hour TV series of shorts and later led to two Mr. Bean movies and a cartoon series. A number of Mr. Bean shorts were about being in church. And there's one in particular in which he falls asleep in church. He actually falls over onto the person next to him, who pushes him off of him. Then he falls onto the floor on his knees. And he doesn't wake up during any of this. I, I wish I could show you the, the outtake, but I heartily encourage you to look it up on YouTube. Well, Mr. Bean is not the only one who has ever fallen asleep in church. I have never fallen asleep in church, but I have yawned in a sermon or two, which was unfortunate since I was the one preaching. Pastors spend a lot of time trying to find the word that God has for us to share with people, but, but we know that any given sermon may resonate with one person and leave everyone else cold. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, used to preach for three hours or more at a time, and people would have ecstatic fits, and he was utterly mystified that anyone could hear one of his sermons and respond with that much emotion. I think every pastor has had the experience of watching someone in the congregation fade during the sermon. We see the overwhelming sleepiness, we see the heroic struggle, eyelids drooping, head tilting forward, and then jerking, jerking awake and desperately hoping no one has noticed. By the way, if that ever happens to you, just remember that when you jerk your head up to say amen, loudly. But the truth is, it's a struggle we've all faced, and Christians from the earliest days of the church did too. Now, I don't know how many Garrison Keillor fans we have here. Keillor has populated his stories from Lake Wobegon with a host of interesting characters, including one, Pastor Inkvest. I love Pastor Inkvest stories, but my uncle, who is actually a Lutheran pastor, cannot stand to listen to them because they're so on the money that they are, are painful to him. One of Garrison Keillor's books is titled Life Among the Lutherans, and there's one story about a sermon Pastor Inkvist preaches which receives a response that he doesn't see coming. He has a bad week, and he has not prepared very thoroughly, and he is not at all satisfied with his sermon. He hasn't even, <clears throat> excuse me, he hasn't even written a conclusion. And to his chagrin, the church is packed that particular day. He delivers what he knows is a poor, inadequate effort. Keeler writes this, Time for the sermon. It was a nervous and turbulent sermon with a bumpy landing due to the loss of one engine, but afterward people shook his hand and said it was one of the very finest they'd ever heard. He thought, you've got to be kidding. But the Lutherans of Lake Wobegon don't use much irony, like they don't use much curry powder. Blushing, he thought, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, very much. After the sermon, when the members of the gathered congregation tell him that it was a fine sermon, one of his finest, which he knows was not true, unless there's something more going on here beyond his poor effort, 
which is exactly what we believe and the only reason that we have the nerve to do it week after week after week. It's not entertainment, it's not an educational, it may be both, but we do it because of the hope and the confidence that God uses the sermon to speak to and to challenge and to comfort and to announce the good news. Today's text from the New Testament book of Acts is interesting me in, in that I've never heard a single sermon on this text, nor have I ever tackled this particular lesson. It's not in the lectionary. It's not in that three-year cycle of readings followed by Catholic and Protestant churches alike. I'm not sure why it isn't in the lectionary, but perhaps because it is not a very flattering story about preachers. It is a wonderful story. It's told without embellishment in the 20th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostle Paul, Christianity's first preacher, evangelist, and working theologian, traveled from one end of the Roman Empire to the other in the years following the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, telling the story of Jesus, first in synagogues, and then on street corners, and then in small communities of believers who had begun to gather regularly to talk about their beliefs and to pray together, to eat a meal together and to remember Jesus as he had instructed, and generally to hold on to one another for comfort and encouragement in a world that didn't know what to make of them. They had begun to take his name for themselves, called themselves Christians, and together they were his ecclesia, his community, his family, the church. They began by meeting together in local synagogues on the Jewish Sabbath. But as Gentiles started to show up and become believers, the Christians gradually pulled away from the synagogue and started to meet on their own. They chose the first day of the week, Sunday, Resurrection Day. Because it was a work day, their meetings took place in the evening in one of their homes. A pattern for early Christian worship began to emerge. Scripture was read from what we call the Old Testament, perhaps interpreted by one of them. If there was a letter from Paul or from one of the other churches, it was read and discussed. They sang hymns from the Psalms, they prayed and they ate a meal together, a real meal, and they repeated the words he said at his last meal with his disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink this wine and do this in remembrance of me. And then they went back into the night to their homes, back into the world, to love and to serve as he had told them to do. Well, Paul is visiting one of these small communities of believers in the city of Troas, a port city on the coast of modern Turkey. It's a quick trip. He's leaving in the morning by ship. Paul is preaching, and because he is leaving in the morning, he may never see the the good people of Troas again, so he wants to give them everything he's got before he leaves. He goes on and on until midnight. Now, we are not told what the substance of his preaching was, what he was preaching. Was it doctrinal? Was he explaining emerging Christian ideas and concepts? Was he expounding on an ethical dilemma? perhaps how believers in Jesus should live in the world? 
Or was it a pastoral sermon offering assurance and comfort to those who were hurting or worried or grieving? We don't know. All the text tell, tells us is that he went on for hours and hours and hours. The meeting was in a room on the third story of a building. It was hot in the room. Maybe it was a warm evening or perhaps there were many lamps in the room that were just heating it up. A young man was there sitting in the window to catch the cool evening breeze. His name was Eutychus and we don't know how old he was, 18, 20, he was a young man. Paul is filling hour and hour and hour with his preaching and it is warm and Eutychus begins to nod off. Finally, he falls asleep, which is perilous because he is sitting in the third floor window. You never want to draw attention when you fall asleep in a place where you're not supposed to. <coughs> Excuse me. I once fell asleep in a mattress store for an hour and a half. It's just embarrassing. But with Eutychus, it was more than embarrassing. It was epic. He fell asleep and then he fell out the window. Well, the window was three stories up, unfortunately. Paul stops talking, he runs down the stairs, followed by the whole congregation, and he finds the young man lying motionless, unconscious on the ground. Paul kneels beside him, he takes him in his arms, he cradles him tenderly, and thanks be to God, sees and feels that he is breathing. He is not dead. Do not be alarmed, he says. His life is still in him. Eutychus is actually able to get up, and his grateful parents take him home. Surprisingly, Paul and the congregation go back upstairs, have their meal, and Paul keeps preaching until dawn. The book of Acts is wonderful because it tells us the story of how a tiny Jewish sect grew to become the church, how it then spread rapidly through the Roman Empire. By the beginning of the fourth century, Christianity was the official state religion of Rome. There were things in place that certainly helped. The Roman transportation system made the spread of an idea through the empire possible. Christianity was inclusive, welcoming everyone and transcending old barriers of class and race and gender. And at the heart of the early Christian movement, the early Christian church, there is this particular and peculiar practice of gathering, a community gathering together. One reads and speaks and something happens, something that is beyond explaining or understanding sometimes. The words become the word of God. The words of one offered to the community become the vehicle by which the community is addressed. The individual members, wherever they are, Whatever is happening in their lives are addressed by God. We call it the theology of the word, and it is not about the particular skills or absence of skills of the preacher. It is about God. God the communicator. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The logos in the Greek. The very nature and essence of God is to communicate, to speak, to be known, to be in communication, to be in relationship with creation and every living creature. 
God is not remote, sitting on some cloud somewhere. God speaks to us continually. Words are powerful. Helen Keller, who lost her sight and hearing in early childhood, locked in complete isolation, said that she had no world until a first word was grasped. When God speaks, creation happens. Let there be light, God says, and there is light. God speaks a word and a people are formed. God speaks and invites people to live in covenantal relationship with God and with one another. And when they forget who they are and whose they are, God speaks through the prophets, individuals who share God's words, God's message. And then the word, God's essential, communicative, loving, relating self, became flesh in Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. God continues to speak in the beauty and power of creation, in the light that comes every morning with the stunning sunrise, with the gentle beauty of the colors of fall, in the majesty of mountains and the power of storms. God speaks in history, in the world, in the life of the world. God's word is spoken through the words and art and music and literature and poetry of humankind. In worship, though, God speaks in community. God speaks in liturgy, song, scripture, and its interpretation. God speaks through the sacraments. God speaks through the renewal of the community. Worship is not about any one act in the worship service. Some may open your eyes to God in your midst and others may not. But God is speaking to us always and does so in lots of different ways, continually assuring us of his love and, and, and calling us into deeper relationship with him and others and the world. The thing I like most about the story of Eutychus is that it tells us something about worship. It sure wasn't the sermon that spoke to him that night, but as the whole community followed Paul down the stairs and watched Paul cradle Eutychus in his arms and heard his assurances that Eutychus was okay, I have to think that this story is not just about Paul preaching all night and a sleepy young man falling out the window. It is a story about that tender gesture of holding Eutychus, reassuring the community that he was not dead, reassuring the community that there was nothing to fear, not even the prospect of death, not the reality of death itself even. It occurred to me that what Paul did in the middle of his interrupted sermon is what the sermon was about is what every sermon is about, and finally, is what the church is about, and what the church is supposed to be. The place where we are all embraced, even in our brokenness, and where we come to understand that what looks like the end in God's embrace is never the end. Thanks be to God. Amen.
us affirm our faith with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We are in the midst of unusual times as we practice social distancing and follow all of the guidelines about this pandemic and how to keep one another safe. We also have been given guidelines by the Virginia Conference of the United Methodist Church. On Sunday, the drive-in service will feature communion and members of the congregation will be invited to bring the elements with them. We are not allowed to do that online. The bishop has issued a, an instruction about that. I would like to read to you her words. They are, clergy and congregations should uphold the current moratorium on online communion that was called for in 2013. We recognize that other conferences and jurisdictions have in some cases allowed for online communion in their own guidelines. We also recognize the technological possibilities for online worship will continue to raise the question for us. We as Virginia Conference leaders, humbly considering this option in an, in an exceptional time, are not of one mind about the appropriateness of this practice to scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, and hence cannot offer a unanimous endorsement of online communion. The letter was signed by Bishop Lewis and her cabinet. I know that this decision is disappointing to people, and the conversation consider, continues. Um, I just hope that when we are able to gather again in person, it will make our gathered communion, communion all the more special. Thank you so much. Oh, 
Now may you go forth in peace to love and to serve God and your neighbor in all that you do. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you always. Amen.